0: This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Teisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, everybody. I think I'm I'm feeling maybe it's important to begin this morning um, instead of Mr. uh, Master, I was going to say Mr. Hawkwind, uh, Master Hawkwind's chant. uh, Maybe we do the repentance gata together. Uh, for those who don't know the Repentance Gata, it's a way of clearing the mind, of setting the stage for clean slate. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's in the chant book. Um, so we'll muddle our way through it together. I'll just say it three times and you can join in as you like. I'll say it 1st um, just tell you what it is, so... All harmful actions committed by me, since time immemorial, stemming from greed, hatred, and delusion, I now repent having committed. All harmful actions committed by me, since time immemorial, stemming from greed, hatred, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. All harmful actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, hatred, and delusion, arising from body, speech, and mind, I now repent having committed. All harmful actions committed by me since time immemorial, stemming from greed, hatred, and delusion, Arising from body, speech and mind I now repent having committed. Good way to start I mean, really every morning. So we'll be looking at case number forty one of the Muman Khan this morning, the gateless gate, the gateless barrier called Bodhidharma and Mind Pacifying. The case, um, Bodhidharma sat in Zazen facing the wall and the second patriarch-to-be, having cut off his arm, stood there in the snow. And he said, your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, my teacher, to please give it peace. Bodhidharma replied, bring your mind here and I will set it to rest. The second patriarch said, I have searched for that mind and have not found it. Bodhidharma said, then I have put it to rest for you. I'll read it once again. Bodhidharma sat in Zazen facing the wall. This is that Shaolin cave, um, very high up in the mountains cave is still there very small dark cave it's not large it's not cavernous it's very small sat facing the wall remember he had arrived there and committed to 9 years of silent sitting huikur is which was his dharma name to the uh, given by Bodhidharma but before that uh, he i don't know his name uh, but the second patriarch or second ancestor-to-be, having cut off his arm, stood there in the snow. You know, this cutting off his arm was, um, we'll get into this later, but a very important part of this story. He had arrived there hoping to get some instruction from Bodhidharma, who had turned him away. So he stood there in the snow and we're told in the story, in the classic telling of the story, that it came up to his knees at this point. And he said, your disciple's mind is not at peace yet. as of yet. I beg you, my teacher, to give it peace. And Bodhidharma replied, bring your mind here and I will set it to rest. And so the second patriarch said, I have searched for that mind and have not found it. So Bodhidharma said, then I have put it to rest for you. So I think most people know that Bodhidharma is the founder of Zen in China, comes from India, Very a um, lot of myth uh, surrounding Bodhidharma's life and teaching. Um, not even clear if it was just one person or if was a sort of amalgam of different people. Um, and Huika um, the, it became his uh, his um, Dharma successor at a later time after this story. If you're interested in reading more about these accounts of the masters, as they go through, there's the book called The Transmission of the Lamp. Um, which is the transmission of the light, which was compiled by a teacher in Japan uh, telling sort of the the stories of these teachers. So, so, you know, this this story, this little snippet of the story is such a dramatic and visceral image, isn't it? And many people, when they hear this story for the first time, or actually after hearing it many times, they kind of wince, you know, this whole uh, cutting off his arm, standing in the snow. Um, But there's something very important in looking, uh, there is something very important in looking at how overly dramatic these stories are, uh, often very heroic, um, maybe even kind of a little machismo. You know how they sound, and, and but you know while doing that, there's also an importance in seeing a kind of a great truth in that's being communicated—the the truth in this image. of Huika standing out, cutting off his arm in the snow. The the amount of suffering and desperation it contains, I think, is quite important. Because this is true in so many people's lives. It's not uh, a fairy tale. Yesterday, I, I took part in a psychotherapy seminar given by a mentor of mine, Marvin Scorman, um, and very brilliant, brilliant um, clinician, but also a, a spiritual seeker. Um, he was a member of the Zen Center in Rochester at one point for many years. But he, at the beginning of the seminar, he started telling... Old stories about um, how difficult it has been, especially in the early years of his psychotherapy training, uh, to and, and teaching to um, to get people to embrace this particular modality of therapy, because um, at its core, this type of therapy posits that real healing only comes, only really takes place when we embrace the darkest and most painful parts of ourselves. Our most difficult feelings, our most guarded impulses. I remember him telling me years ago that He used to show videotapes of real clients uh, to third-year psychiatry students at the University of Rochester um, and how, as they were being shown, um, how some of these residents would and faculty would walk out of the trainings because their own anxiety would get so stirred up, their own unconscious would get so stirred up, seeing clients work through such painful images and feelings, often very visceral and detailed. But this is a part of being human. And so when we come become anxious in the face of a story like this or somebody's pain It's a sign that there's something important to work through. When we become uncomfortable, it's actually where we should turn towards rather than away. Like what is it that's so uncomfortable for us to face when we see somebody's pain, hear disturbing thoughts, our own or somebody else's? And so it can take a great amount of courage to do this. First to notice our reactions, and then to remain present in the face of those reactions. To know that somebody can be in such mental turmoil that they would take their own arm, standing in the snow, Of course, we don't know if this literally happened or not. Um, Probably not, is my guess. But maybe, I don't know. Um, But historicity is not the only measure of a story's truth. And putting literal truth aside, what is this evocative image pointing to? And not just generally or philosophically, but how is this story relevant in our own life? Of course, this is the power of working through these koans, is at first they seem very abstract or philosophical or irrelevant to our own life. But as we become intimate with them and work on them day in and day out in the zendo or at home, they become... Us, in essence, in this case, it would be to become Huika the second ancestor. So the story is preceded by Huico's own journey up to this point. He he began his practice as a, as so many of us do, by approaching it very intellectually and philosophically, so common, but also like many of us that became dissatisfying to him. And it's interesting to see how many people come to Buddhism from that position of uh, of curiosity intellectually. It's interesting because Buddhism at its core and, and from the very beginning of the Four Noble Truths is not philosophical. It's, it's rooted in experience. And so at some point, people have to sort of reckon with that, you know, to, to make sense that when you stand outside the teachings and approach them intellectually, they're not going to do much for you. And that can take a long time for some people. It can take Years before people begin really practicing for different reasons, of course. and sometimes it can feel like when you watch this, it's like watching somebody circle the drain, <laughs> you know It's like when are you going to go down that damn drain? <laughs> you know um, Or dipping your toe in the water and pulling it out, dipping it in, pulling it out. And of course there's not much you can do about that other than have patience and make the teachings available. And so this story leading up to this koan, we're told that Huika eventually became dissatisfied with his own approach in his Buddhist practice. And in the Transmission of the Lamp, that book I, um, or the Light, Transmission of the Light, um, it there's a quote by him right before he goes to see Bodhidharma. And it, it goes like this. He says, To himself, he says to himself, people of old sought the way by smashing their bones to take out the marrow, slashing their veins to feed hungry animals, spreading their hair to cover the muddy road in order to let a spiritual person pass through safely, or leaping off a cliff to feed a hungry tigress. All through the ages, people have behaved like this. Who am I not to do so? These, what he's referring to here are some of the Jataka tales. And the Jataka tales are the recounting of the Buddha's past lives, where he was reborn over and over again, we're told, in different forms, human, animal, etc. And each life he in some way sacrificed himself for someone else, um, sort of setting the stage for him becoming uh, the Buddha, eventually being born as Siddhartha and reaching full awakening. And so Huika is sort of questioning his own um, motives, his own approach, comparing himself, of course, to others, the Buddha. And other teachers and so it's really um, sinking in for him at this point how if he continued in this way he would really never settle his own heart and so he goes to Bodhidharma and asks for the teachings for guidance but Bodhidharma uh, according to the story just continues to sit facing the wall so to face the wall means to face ourselves. In the Soto tradition, as you know this, I think, the when we sit Zazen, we sit facing the wall. The only reason we don't do that in the Zendo is because the windows. Um, but otherwise, you sit facing the wall. And um, it's both metaphorical. It also has a very... Um, practical side to it, that it's less distracting to face a surface where you're not looking out at everything, but what it appears is that Bodhidharma is rebuffing Kuika. But if we look a little deeper, we might see that actually this is a teaching in itself to sit and face yourself. You know, many people practice and sit and meditate and yet really don't face themselves. Rather, they, they often, we, we, me, often use the time instead to cling to thoughts and to weave story. I often think of Zazen time as some, the way some people use it as a time to sort of get to, get going on They're crocheting of the mind, you know, the stories. Let me embellish them a little bit more during this nice silent time. There's nothing else I'm doing. And, or or rather than just new stories, sometimes it's just been working with this phrase lately, the persistent narrative. To, so sometimes it's just continuing or embellishing the persistent narrative, whatever that is for you. So it can appear that Bodhidharma is actually not answering huika or is harsh or uncaring. But really, this is about putting a back on huika. Are you ready to face yourself? Anything short of that won't produce any change. So what does it mean to face ourselves? You know, there's, there's an old story in Zen, or an old phrase in Zen, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And we can take, can take this to mean it's some sort of esoteric or sort of like um, cool kind of thing. But I think the real point of this saying is that the teachings are all around us and all the time. The teacher, so to speak, is always here. And the Dharma just means the way things are, not what they, we want them to be. And not wanting them to be, the way we want things to be, is, is runs so deep, it, I find that there's so many layers to that that um, we're just kind of exposing those layers, like an archeologist that's digging through the different strata of rock. And so when we, at times, get through those strata, of the way we want things to be, then the mind becomes receptive and recognizes something very deep and important. So Bodhidharma is waiting for Huika to get to this point. The other night during Tuesday night discussion, we talked about commitment and uh, we began to explore what does it really mean to commit oneself in practice? What is commitment itself? And of course, we know we want change And, and so often we don't experience the change that we want. And when we examine that, what it means to change, what we find is that there's always a cost to change. To embrace something new um, really requires letting go of something old. In Zen practice, this means our fixed ideas. And so often, instead, what we want to do is we want to hold on to the old and get the new thing. But that, that can't work. It can't work. You can't look backward and forward at the same time. It's not possible. We just end up tripping when we try. And so when we look at our own practice and our own commitment we have to examine and be honest. Is this what we're doing? So much of our suffering, our anxiety comes from wanting to embrace something new but also wanting to hold on to the old. And this creates a tension inside of us because it's not possible to do. So at some point the bargaining that we do in the mind has to stop. I remember as a kid uh doing this with my parents uh they would tell me to clean my room and so go. You, you know you go into your room and you throw a couple things in the closet or under the bed and and then they come in and check on your progress and you say i'm done and they say no you're not and then you fight it and so you they leave and you do a couple more things right and this goes on and on. They come back in and say, "No, you're not." And and so, of course, what as a kid, what, what you're trying to do is get away with something. And but you, what you don't recognize is how much of a pain you're actually causing yourself. You know, when you do that, how much? I, not to mention the headache you're causing for your parents, right? But that's what we all do as adults too. This bargaining, this kind of bargaining. Get a little new, hold on to the old. But what we end up getting is nothing really substantial. You know, commitment is the very opposite of that. No wonder our minds are not at peace. And this is what Hui Ke says in this Kohen My mind is not yet at peace. Please put it to rest. Cutting off his arm represents this cutting off from the old. Standing in the snow is committing. In essence, his mind was no longer divided at that point. And yet he didn't recognize it. He didn't see how undivided he actually really was yet. How can that be? Well, I remember meeting with my teacher years ago, many, many years ago in Doksan, and feeling quite desperate for, for change. And we were talking, as we were talking, he was sharing with me, because I was the monitor. And a monitor in Sashin, we don't have them here because we just don't have a need for them yet. Um, but there were more people in Sashin. And the monitor is somebody who just um, keeps a tab on Sashin so the teacher doesn't have to. You know how's everybody doing? Who needs who needs a uh, an aspirin? Who, who needs uh, uh, another blanket? You know they just are kind of like the administrative helper. And so he was sharing with me in Dokson about how he thought how wonderful it was that people were changing. How he could see the change in people. And then he looked looked deeply into my eyes. And he said, and the person who has changed the most is you. And at that moment, my mind cleared. All it needed was a catalyst of sorts. How often we fail to see the change that we are going through because we're still looking for something greater. We're looking to the horizon rather than at what's happening. Bodhidharma says, bring me your mind and I'll put it to rest for you. And Huika says, I've searched for my mind and it's nowhere to be found. Bodhidharma sees that Hukika is on the verge of realization. He sees a man who is all in, who is given it all, who has sacrificed and searched and turned over every stone. And all that is needed for him is to see that the very act of total commitment is itself the Bodhi mind. That commitment, when you're fully in, the mind is not divided. This is the awakened mind. All escape routes have been tried and exhausted. How many times I've counseled somebody, for example, that um, let's say are going through a, um, they're in a relationship, maybe beginning a relationship, and they're going, I can't decide is this person right for me or not? don't don't know they're hesitant you know and what they don't see is that the actual problem is not the other person whether or not they're right or wrong for them it's actually the hesitancy itself that's the problem is the hesitancy because the hesitancy creates the mind that divides it's well, it's on the, on, on the positive column, this person is this way, and on the negative column, and they're in the middle trying to figure it all out. So standing on the sidelines, standing on the sidelines, holding back is another way to put it, is the problem in many of the encounters of our life and in Zen practice as well. It reminds me of this quote, one of my most favorite quotes, maybe a little bit overused, so apologies if you've heard it a million times, uh, by W.H. Murray on Commitment. He says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. So the mind is not at peace when it's hesitating. Commitments means settling into something not settling for, settling into something, closing the door, as Joe Colbeck puts it in her book, when we the one we've been reading on Tuesday nights, closing the door. When we do that, our minds come to rest, become settled, and then we can turn to what is rather than what, what could be. The mind that finds peace, not in some future condition, right, but finds it not in the imagination of what could be. That only happens when when we truly stop searching, looking. And the Buddha um, named five major forces that keep this from happening. And he called these the five hindrances. One is laziness. Two is desire. Three is ill will. Four is doubt. And five is restlessness. They're all very powerful forces. And anyone who has attended a sashin or a retreat knows these as well. We all experience them outside a retreat, of course, too. And it's very difficult to think yourself out of them. We all know this, that when somebody gives you all the advice you're not looking for, right? And they say, well, think about it this way. Or they say, you know, just look at the bright side or whatever. How well does that work? Maybe once in a blue moon that works. I, I but but it's but it's just somebody else's thoughts. It's just like our thoughts. If we, we just want to say to the person, look, I, if it was so easy, <laughs> you know, I would have thought of that. I, I I have thought of that. It doesn't work. And yet what I find is that commitment. Is often the antidote to so many things. Commitment. It has a power to cut through because when we commit, we don't constantly reassess our situation, we don't bargain, we're not looking for the best deal anymore. If we do, it's not going to last long because much of the work that happens isn't really apparent to us. People who judge their own meditation practice, for example, each round saying it was good or bad, or don't recognize that the act and the actual change comes from the commitment to sitting still, not from how clear your mind was or not. It, because committing sends a deep signal to the mind that we're not going anywhere. It's like sending a signal to a child who's been traumatized by just through your deep presence with them. You're not going anywhere. It's not relying on feelings, it's not relying on thoughts. It's just we do. Commitment is about doing. So one of these other forces that I I would add, that I might add to the list of hindrances um, is the lack of continuity in practice. And I think this is perhaps one of the most difficult things for practitioners, how easy it is to wax and wane in practice, in our efforts, in practice. And in doing so, when we do that, when we wax and wane like that, we lose a tremendous amount of um, uh, opportunity to see what happens over a sustained period of time. When we go, when we practice in fits and starts, Um, we're always having to hit the reset button and of course there's nothing wrong with that we ultimately we got to do that sometimes but what what happens when we do that is we go well I'm not seeing the progress I want and I want to see more we don't get the benefit of seeing something play out over a long period of time I mean, anybody can come to one retreat or one, you know, practice for a small period of time. But that kind of approach isn't going to yield much. Some people have the opposite problem. They jump full in. They commit fully. But I think it's also important to temper our commitment. You know, you hear stories like this one, Huika cutting off his arm. You know, luckily, I don't think anybody, any of you fall into this category. But uh, I've known especially young men who take these stories like this and go, you know, I'm going to do that. In fact, there was one somebody, not here in this Zendo, but at another Zendo who stabbed himself in the leg to keep himself up at night to sit to try to to stave off quiet or stave off sleep. And so the danger of stories like this is it can communicate of kind of, well, there has to be this Herculean kind of commitment or effort. But that kind of effort and commitment often undermines the real work, the work of the unsung hero. You know, some, now that Trump's gone, thank God, now that Trump's gone, um, some people have been saying it's going to be so humdrum now, so boring, right? So undramatic. It's kind of true. Because his presidency was like a TV show. Um like, you know, what did he what did he say now? What did he do? We're all looking forward to hearing what kind of buffoonery. In some weird way. Of course we all hate it, but in some strange way, we were all addicted to that kind of buffoonery. It was entertainment. The media loved it. That's a, I mean, they probably made they probably hired more people in the last four years than in the history of media because of Trump. So now it's so undramatic. But now we have somebody in the presidential office who has been working for 45 plus years in such an undramatic way. But that's the way that most change happens, undramatically. Can we see it, though? Can we appreciate that? Slowly, methodically. And so we don't need to see our practice in terms of heroics. The change that happens comes slowly, oftentimes, and without a lot of fanfare. And then perhaps during those times of reflection, it can hit us how much we've actually changed. But we have to see it. And we can't see it if we're still looking to the hero, to the story of the hero. It's so deeply wired in us. That's why as much as we hated Trump, we also loved him, not because he was a hero, because because of the drama. And so spiritual, true spiritual practice is actually a quiet revolution. It's a quiet revolution. Once we commit both feet in, we often find that this is the missing ingredient in our practice to true peace. And so many of you might be thinking about the past commitments that you've made. When we start talking about commitments, a lot of people start recoiling because when we think about our past commitments, often they haven't worked. We've been burned by commitments. And of course, our experiences can't just be thrown out. We have to look at them because our decisions are shaped by our experience. And yet they shouldn't be clung to either. So what do we do? So one thing is to really examine when we think about committing and how afraid we are of committing, what was the spirit behind those commitments that didn't work for you? Oftentimes what we find is a great number of healthy, unhealthy, unhealthy dynamics in our past commitments. Many people commit out of compliance Out of a feeling of being coerced, wanting to be seen in a certain way, afraid of losing somebody or something. But this isn't really true commitment. The the fuel for real true commitment is actually, is is not doing so because we're being cajoled or compliant or a good little Buddhist's. It doesn't come from guilt, or I should do that. That's not commitment. The fuel for real commitment to my mind is the desire to settle our own minds. That's the real fuel source. Born out of our own anguish, or if not anguish, at least our dissatisfaction. the second noble truth of Buddhism. Suffering is caused by dissatisfaction and craving. This anguish or this dissatisfaction, Robert Aiken called, he said, it's the treasure of the path. This desire, which is the one desire that the Buddha said was okay, is the longing for freedom from the present narrative, the persistent present narrative the stories, the painful stories that we believe. Longing for freedom from anxiety, from feelings of isolation. Each one of us has a different fuel source. And and part of our path is to touch into what is your fuel source? What is it that fuels your commitment? We have to know ourselves. This is upaya, skillful means. This is a really important for everybody to consider is how skillful you are with yourself, how well you know yourself, recognizing your triggers, your patterns, your habits, what pulls you into habit, what pulls you out of habit, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. This is the beauty to my mind of being human. Because we're used, we have the power to use the mind to study the mind. How many other creatures, I, I mean, maybe they do, I don't know, but I don't think so. I think that what's unique about humans is that we can use our minds on our minds. To how rare that must be as a living life form. Not to just be caught in the cycle of birth and death. And so skillful means upaya, means seeing what works for us. And when we apply that to commitment, it means knowing how, knowing ourselves well enough to know how we're going to fail to live up two commitments. Wrecking, you know, seeing those triggers. For me, it was... It became about using the forms of formal practice because I knew that I was addicted in a sense to the way things looked, the way things appeared. I I, 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 at some point decided I have to use the forms of Zen practice. I I knew also that I needed external structure. I needed discipline from the outside. And so consciously it was but first I'm going to establish rapport with my teacher, commit to ongoing meetings, then be going through the formal ceremony of becoming a student. That was helpful for me because I knew it was keeping my feet to the fire, volunteering at times. And I also began to make spiritual friendships with people in the sangha that would support me in the practice. We would sit together or, They would say, hey, did you sit this morning? And then it became about taking Jukai, receiving the precepts, sewing a Raksu, again, knowing that I kind of wanted one, right? And it was kind of addictive in a way, but it was skillful. It was like, okay, how can I use this addiction that I have to keep me going? Not to keep the addiction going, I have to see it. I have to hold it lightly, but to keep myself going on the path. Eventually, it became about, for me, it became ordaining as a priest. Again, just knowing what I needed. And occasionally, the other thing I would do is stop sitting on purpose. Stop sitting just to see how my strong my practice was. Did it hold up without the forms? Did it hold up to test the waters, to reassess my commitment, to make sure it had enough strength? Because no matter what external structures are there, ultimately those are only so valuable. And so many of you are learning what it means to make a healthy commitment to practice, staying Engaged intellectually is one of those qualities, too. Um, we don't want to become zendoids, you know, where we're, we're not engaged in intellectually in, in the study of the Dharma. So the other night, I suggested four major areas. Zazen, committing to Zazen, committing to body practice of some kind, committing to study, having a book, that you're actually diving deeply into around the Dharma and then practicing liturgy, some form of faith practice, you know, chanting, bowing, giving ourselves with our bodies. And even so, when we do that, it can still be challenging to keep that commitment alive. How do we keep our commitments in the mind? As Dahui said on the tip of our nose. I just love that. How do we keep the practice on the tip of our nose amongst the vacations and the financial planning and the family commitments and all the other things that we have? How do we keep the Dharma forefront in our minds? And so it just becomes a manifestation of the actual practice itself, of zazen, of when the mind wanders, we bring it back. When it wanders, we bring it back. Cutting off from thoughts, like Hui cutting off his arm. But it has to happen over and over and again. As my teacher used to say, cut, cut, cut. So how do you practice? How do you commit What's skillful for you? Once we figure that piece out and we get a rhythm, um, what comes to mind is this poem or this part from Master Mumon's, one of his verses from the Mumon Khan, a different case, where he says, when we do so, we can't help but wear Buddha's clothes, eat Buddha's food, speak Buddha's words, and do Buddha's deeds. I just love that. I know we're out of time. I didn't know I was going to go this long. I apologize. So if you need to bow out, please do. But for anybody who would like to um, talk about commitment for a moment or two, I'd like you to take off your mic and uh, take off your mute and and um, dive in. And we'll just take a few minutes past because uh, I think this is an important topic. But again, if you need to go, please do. Hey, um. I'll say the talk on Commitment this morning reminded me of a drawing by Hakuin called Monkey Reaching for Moonlight. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that one, but it's quite literally a monkey
0: clinging to a branch, reaching for the reflection of moonlight on the surface of
1: water. And, um, you know, it just if the monkey would only just let go and dive in he'd be basking in the moonlight right then of he'd be being with what he wanted. But, you know, we cling to the past. We
0: want to have the past there and yet we want things that we're reaching for. But if we would just commit and dive right in, Hmm.
1: we'd probably find what we're looking for. Good point, Matt. Yes. I love that. By the way, I have a version of that by Shoto Harada Roshi in the doksan room above the altar so yeah anything else? like to add
2: something? yeah uh, I wondered last time we had session. I was like uh, why did this session go so well when all the other ones I did before were just like these horrible experiences that I had like and now that I, you sort of did the talk, I kind of realized that as soon as I hit the cushion, like, I was like, it just immediately surrendered and like just committed to this fashion and that like changed everything. But in my normal everyday life, I have like habit forces which are like super duper strong mm-hmm. that lean towards non-committing. Yeah. And so like, I I definitely do need that like outside discipline. Otherwise, like it's, it just won't happen for me, yeah. you know? Yeah. So what do we do when, like, not even I can do it? You yeah. know, sometimes I feel like not even I can get out of these habits.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to, again, I, I think part of it is connecting, like I said in the talk, is with the, what our fuel source is, mm-hmm. y- you know, that drives commitment. Okay. So so there's skillful means, being skillful, external discipline. But also, what? why am I doing this? Why should I commit? Well, what's the, what's the driving force towards what you're trying to commit to, question that, you know, um, get in touch with that. It might be reciting something every morning, reminding ourselves what, why we're doing something so, uh, rather than just doing it, you know. It's not questioning and it's not, getting, it's not getting cognitive, so to speak. It's just that's a mantra of some kind or, you know, something like that. That's why at the end of each night in Sashin, we say, great is the matter of birth. Or we say, uh, even as night darkens the green earth, the wheel turns, death follows birth. Strive through the night with every breath that you might wake past day, past death. That's the reason we say that, so that it reminds us why we're practicing. um, Because it's easy to forget.
0: Yeah, I know for me, I made the commitment, and it took me a while to recognize the benefits of the commitment, and to recognize the—you um, know—I I became settled. I started changing po- in positive ways. I can—I can, I can see—it's—it's it's obvious the change is ha- that's happening. Um, so then you can s- take what you said, and oh yeah, no wonder. So sometimes action precedes consciousness, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Cindy. And that's a good point. But the other thing to remember is that sometimes when we don't change, we want to, we, it's easy then to give up on our commitments. It's easier to commit when we see the change we want. But um, as, as, as some of you have encountered in Dokson, one of the annoying questions I ask is um, sometimes Mu is like a dry desert. How do you show me that desert? In other words, sometimes there's not a lot of juice in practice, and there's not a lot of change that's happening. You know, it's like mile after mile of walking with no oasis in sight. That's when it becomes hard, right?
2: That's you know, true. we all
1: experience that in our jobs. We all experience that in our families. We all experience that in our love lives. Um, gets dry. And it's like, is the tendency then to say, well, it's not working, screw this, I'm done. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's important. I just wanted to say, it kind of struck me that you, the way you said, uh, the commitment is, is more important than, than, I guess, judging our practice or seeing how our practice is going.
0: Just to, just to keep going with the commitment regardless. Yeah
1: step back and yeah, focus on. Yeah, yeah. You want to do that over the long haul, right? It's like, uh, like I've said before, it's like being in the stock market. <laughs> Could you mute? Um, so, so you do, you know, you don't, if you're, I don't know anything about stocks, but I've been told, don't check the stocks every day <laughs> because it'll drive you crazy. You'll pull out at the wrong time. You'll make dumb dis- decisions and because it goes down. Uh, or what have you and so um you just you just forget about it <laughs> you just let your investments roll right and hopefully over time the market grows it's the same thing with practice you just get it going put your investment in and then forget about it and just keep going let it do its thing and and eventually it'll grow and hopefully there won't be a big sell-off
0: Anything else? Yes, Anne. Hi, Anne. Yeah. So, whether it's the stock market, it generally tends to move up and toward into the right uh, over time. But also, thinking about the monkey, both of these things, letting go and letting your stocks um, grow over time, trusting that if it goes down, yeah, it'll come back. But letting go of that branch to dive into the water, to reach the moon strikes me that it's about trust. Trusting that I can let go of my past and there's a better future. And once I let go of that branch, at least in that analogy, I can't scramble back up there very easily. I'm in the water. So trust seems to me to be a real key here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Skepticism is, is is really oftentimes what's behind not committing. But that's the that's where the pain comes from. Skeptical mind. Okay. Sounds good. Right? We're all committed. All right. So, let me uh, stop here and we'll recite the four vows. And then we'll do just a standing vow so that we don't take too much more time. The four vows. All beings without number, I bow to liberate endless blind missions I vow to uproot the armies beyond